blessed to have our final message today uh, given by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, titled The Unity of the Spirit. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day, chilly, little gloomy, but still another wonderful Sabbath day. So, as was mentioned, the title of this message today is The Unity of the Spirit. I got this title from Paul's words that he wrote in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and that's what we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 6. And according to, if you were to go, just thinking about this word, do a dictionary, maybe just a quick Google search of the word unity in our English language, it means the state of being united or joined as a whole. Unity. And of course, we know, just from reading scripture, that a big part of Christianity is unity. Unity with Christ, and of course our Father. Unity with the brethren. Unity through the church. But unfortunately, when we look at the history of Christianity, I think it's safe to say that this unity... That's the ideal, that's the paradigm that we were given, is not always something that's a reality. And I think that we would all agree that within our own faith tradition, maybe we've even experienced this ourselves. Unity is something that we have to fight for. It's not automatic. Just being members of Christ's body does not mean we automatically get along. We don't automatically agree on everything. Of course, there is, you know, maybe when you first are baptized, there's that, I don't want to use the, the, the word honeymoon stage, but I mean, there's not another metaphor that I can really think about because there is kind of a honeymoon stage. Everything's new, and then time goes on. You're still a human. You still have the fleshly desires, the fleshly uh, vices, so to speak, that make it difficult sometimes to be unified with each other and to stay unified even, I think, to some extent with our calling as life sometimes through the flesh, through maybe even the tempter, gets in the way. So today, I just want to look at six verses in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, because as already has been mentioned, Paul outlines some characteristics, and these characteristics, I think, are essential for us to display in our walk with him in order for this unity to take place. And I'd like to, as I mentioned, just read these first six verses, and we're going to look at three specific characteristics today that are essential for unity, but are also essential in our Christian walk. Let's read Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 17. Or no, excuse me, 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and dear, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope 
of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so right here we, get, we are given this admonition, I guess you would call it, to live worthy of your calling. And this is, if you've listened to some of my messages in the past few years, maybe it's familiar because I've spoken on this topic before, especially whenever I did a, a series on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians because that concept was also in that epistle. And we see that not only was it in 1 Thessalonians and Ephesians, but it's in other places. And so the fact that Paul repeats this concept of walking worthy of our calling, I think, tells us that maybe it's something that we should oftentimes reflect upon. Now, the Greek word worthy is the word that literally means bringing up the beam. Bringing up the beam. And it gives the idea of equivalence. So the idea, therefore, is in this way, that one's walk, one's conduct, one's behavior is consistent, is in equivalency to the title in which they claim to be. And in reading one of the sources this week, as I was preparing this message, I consulted some different sources, but one that I came across was an author I like to, I, he's a pastor in Texas, and I don't even know if he's still alive, but he's written many different, uh, I guess you would say, articles over many different parts of the Bible, and I've always enjoyed his writings. His name is Bob Deffenbaugh, and many of these writings are found on Bible.org. But he wrote this regarding this verse, and I don't know if it was originally to him, but he says this, one's calling sets the standard for their conduct. One's calling sets the standard for the conduct. And I think that we both see this in our modern society, and we also expect it. And what I mean by that is, if we just think about it, when we think of people in all different types of professions, all different types of, so to speak, callings, whether it be a doctor, whether it be a school teacher, an accountant, the position in which they hold, of course, brings with it the expectations that they will walk in a certain manner and hold up a standard of conduct that is worthy of that position. We see this, of course, as I just mentioned, doctors, they take the Hippocratic Oath, there's a standard in which they are supposed to practice their medicine with. Same thing with teachers. There's a teacher oath. I mean, there's not one like the Hippocratic oath, but there's expectations, there's laws, there's codes of ethics that governs one's conduct, that has the role of a teacher and, of course, an accountant as well. Just recently, we've all probably you know, watched some of this, but there's been several different new appointed justices appointed to the Supreme Court. And in our system of government in the United States, the process of appointing a judge to the Supreme Court, of course, involves the appointee being appointed by the president. But then there is also this obligation to give testimony and answers to what is known as the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee hearings. And in those hearings, there is an obligation of that appointee to go before that committee and to testify. Testify, answer questions, uh, look at their history maybe. Now, we know, just watching these things, it's probably not the best example because unfortunately, like all things in our society, 
Much of it's become political. But in theory, the point is what? To make sure that they are properly vetted, that they demonstrate competency, of course, as a judge, but also that they have a track record that shows them worthy to hold such a high office in morality, in their faithfulness to the Constitution, and of course, in their integrity. So why am I bringing all of this out? Well, the idea that we have from Paul is that we need to walk worthy of our Christian calling. And although in our society, things like being appointed to the Supreme Court, that's a high office, an even higher office is one who is claiming Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Even if the world doesn't think so, there is no other calling higher than one who claims to belong to Christ. Does our conduct in life properly reflect and resemble this calling? Do we, in that word worthy, have an equivalency in our behavior to that calling in which we claim? Now, there's many things that drive our desire, or our conduct, right? Like desires, our attitudes and, and thoughts. Of course, those are driven by those desires. Our desires bear our attitudes, our thoughts, things that we consume. All of these things work to shape our conduct. And so as we read that first passage, Paul leaves us with that and then turns and gives us four different characteristics that are worthy character traits. I'm going to read those two verses again, two and three. Verses two and three. Paul says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now we're going to look at three of these because I've combined the last two together. The idea of endeavoring, uh, bearing with one another and long-suffering, I'm, I'm combining those two. But we see that Paul lists these attitudes uh, that is a demonstration that we are truly following after Christ. And why is that? Why are these behaviors, these characteristics so important? Is because these are the very attitudes that Jesus Christ displayed when he was on this earth. If we are to be representatives of Christ here on this earth, we must also strive to display the characteristics that mark who he was. If we're going to be followers, and a literal follower, then we have to do everything we can to imitate Jesus Christ. If we are going to achieve that unity of the Spirit, it is essential that we follow after these characteristics. The first one, as the New King James Version reads, is lowliness. Now, if you have a different translation, Oftentimes, this Greek word is translated as humility. Humility. I think we would all agree that this world would be much better if we had this characteristic displayed among mankind. The way that humility is defined in our current English language is a person who has a modest or low view of one's self-importance. Humility. Now, in the Greek world of the New Testament, this idea, it wasn't something that was considered good. 
It actually had a negative connotation. In fact, I like this quote from a Bible commentary by the name of Armitage Robinson. It's actually a rather old uh, commentary back in the early 1900s, but I really like the way that he put this uh, quick little paragraph of sentences in regards to the way that Greek thought thought of the word humility. He says, To the Greek mind, humility was little else than a vice of nature. It was weak and mean-spirited. It was the temper of the slave. It was inconsistent with, the self, with that self-respect which every true man owed to himself. The fullness of life, as it was then conceived, left no room for humility. Humility was not looked at as a positive characteristic of an individual. Now, today in our society, I think we could say it's mixed. I think in large portions of society, there are people who look at humility as something that is a positive characteristic of an individual. But what we see, which is interesting, in Jesus' day, one of the things that marked his ministry was that he did not go along with the typical societal societal norms of the day. And oftentimes what he would do is he would take things that were typically understood one way and he would turn them upside down. Let's go to Matthew the 18th chapter real quick and let's look at just a quick example of this. Matthew the 18th chapter. There's so many different examples that we could go to that demonstrates Jesus's conflict with the typical norms of the day, but Matthew the 18th chapter is the one that came to to my mind as I was preparing this message, and it was this question that the disciples asked Jesus. It says in verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, assuredly I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 5, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now when you first read that, you might think to yourself, well this is pretty common. We read the Gospels, Jesus does something, he says something, and what do the disciples do? They ask a question. And in fact, when we read the Gospels, the Gospels are filled with the disciples asking for points of clarification from the disciples. Jesus spokes or speaks in parables, and the disciples are like, hey, Lord, Jesus, why do you keep talking in parables? He talks about things like how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they ask, well, if that's the case, Jesus, who can be saved then? He starts talking about how he's going to return at some point whenever he is executed. And they ask, okay, if that's the case, what's the sign of your coming? But for this question, we have to wonder why. What prompted this? Who is the greatest? I don't know if we can come to a complete, solid answer on exactly what prompted the disciples to ask this question. But I do think that we can maybe envision that the societal thinking of Jesus' day 
may have played a role. And that is in regards to who they were as disciples. When we think about who they were, they weren't what you would consider people who came from affluence. They weren't people who came from high status. They grew up as Jews, a people group that were already subject to other authorities, the Romans, and not only that, but within their Jewish heritage, they weren't even a part of the established class. They were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were Galileans, none of which were impressive in this world. They came from what we would consider very humble origins, and now, now they have gotten a little taste, maybe, of what it was like to be in the in crowd. They grew up in these humble origins, probably looked down upon by all the people. Remember, in this day and age, there wasn't what you would consider like a middle class. It was either high status, and majority of people were probably considered in poverty by modern standards. And they finally, in their minds, probably got to be a part of something that they felt was bigger than themselves. That they were in the in crowd in something in life. But now Jesus is talking about being executed. They are called by Jesus to follow him. He starts talking about how he is essentially, in metaphorical terms, the Messiah. And now Jesus is talking about how he's going to go up to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over, and he's going to be executed. And we know from earlier passages, such as Matthew, the 17th chapter, verse 23, when Jesus first starts talking about this, it made them very anxious. In fact, 17 verse 23 of Matthew's gospel says that they were filled with sorrow when he talked about going up to Jerusalem. So perhaps maybe their question about Jesus or to Jesus about who was going to be the greatest was prompted by the fact that he did tell them that he was going to die, that he was going to be executed. Maybe some were thinking, well, Jesus, if you're going to die, well, who's going to make it? Will we still be in this in crowd? Will we still be a part of this movement? I'm not saying that this happened, but perhaps, just perhaps, maybe some of them thought, well, Jesus, if you die, who's going to be first to take over? We don't exactly know. But we do know Jesus' response. And it's probably not something that they wanted to hear. Rereading Matthew 18, verses 2 through 5, Jesus says, then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And of course, the reason that they would not want hear this as a response most likely is because children they weren't considered like they are today they weren't the precious little children like we look at them today but they were at the very bottom of the social stratosphere and I think that and to modern standards sometimes maybe because of the way that we think about this idea we might miss the point because in our day and age if you're like me you probably relish the idea. If Jesus told you, you've got to be like a little child again. You're probably thinking, man, that sounds good. Go back and be a kid again? Not have the responsibilities of being an adult and all the different things? 
be able to get out of bed and not pull a muscle? That sounds pretty good, right? But of course, for those living in this time, in this day and age, the disciples, they probably didn't think like that. They probably had the opposite because the societal norms was not like they are today. People, of course, knew that childhood was a natural part of life. But it was a part of life that you wanted to get through as soon as you possibly could. And you certainly did not want to go back and re-experience that. Now, we know that Jesus was being metaphorical. We know that the disciples probably understood that he was being metaphorical. But what's interesting is, is that Jesus takes one of the most humble, lowly individuals, or, or shall we say symbols of society, and says, if you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least. And he follows that paradigm himself. Jesus becomes the greatest because he becomes the least. He becomes the least. He wanted them to understand that the true mark of discipleship of him was not what society based, what was honorable. It was the exact opposite. He turned that societal norm upside down. To show humility is to walk the way of Jesus. To break those societal paths that we even to this day have. The greatest is Jesus because he became the least. And we know he did. Coming into the most degrading form of execution. Philippians, the second chapter We've all read this before. Verses 5 through 11 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider himself, or did not consider it robbery, rather, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And we know through the scriptures that Jesus, he left his divine status in heaven, and became a man, became a human being. He did not consider that status that he had in his pre-existent state as something to hold on to. But for us, to redeem us, he left that. And he took the form of a bondservant, of a human being. And not only that, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further by, of course, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have to think to ourselves in this idea of being humble, having humility. If Jesus was not concerned with the status that he had before men, he didn't care about what honor was in the typical society that he lived in today, then we ourselves should not be. Jesus' only concern was his status before his Father in heaven. And that is what we must be focused on. The fact that Jesus died for us and that we are a new creature and have been exalted should humble us. It should humble us. Because it's not something that we have done of ourselves. We don't have an attitude 
in society that I'm better than them, I'm better than you, I'm a part of the in-group, because we know that this has only been made possible by nothing that we can boast of. So it's not just something that this is how we treat people within the church, it's also how we have without, the, with, uh, without within our society. It's the way that we act by all, uh, to all men, to all women, to all creatures. And of course, it's something in a way that, in, in an attitude that we have within church. Jesus would a little bit later say, and it's all throughout the scriptures, this concept in Matthew 23, verse 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So humility is a key. It's a key to unity within the church, unity within the spirit, and it's a key, I think, that unlocks the ability to demonstrate the other characteristics that Paul outlines right after this word loneliness, which is humility. The second thing he says is gentleness. The word for gentleness is the same word for meekness. If you have the King James Version, that's what that word, uh, it's the same word. This word describes a considerate spirit or attitude. And some people, they may see gentleness in our common, character, you know, common culture as weakness. Someone who's soft, spoken maybe, not confrontational. Maybe they look at those individuals as being passive. Paul, nor Jesus, tells us that we are to be passive about all things. We're not supposed to just be passive about sin, passive about unrighteousness. We're not try, you know, he's not saying that we're to be weak, but rather gentleness as the way that it's expressed in the New Testament is actually something that demonstrates a characteristic of strength. You want to know why? Ask yourself what's more difficult, to lash out people in anger when they treat you wrong or to be gentle and to have a gentle, gentleness about you. I don't know if you're like me, but whether it be my, my thoughts, my attitudes, self-control, which is the prerequisite for gentleness, is more difficult than the opposite, than acting on those human carnal uh, inclinations that we may have. I think it takes more self-control, of course, to be gentle than it does to be rash, uh, to lash out, to have a sharp tongue, to have attitudes that uh, are prompted by our anger. And a recent example of this, that uh, as I was looking at this idea of gentleness, and we could spend an entire message and, and weeks talking about gentleness, and we can go back and look at how it's a characteristic of God. But some of you may relate to this, uh, some may not. But uh, if you're a parent, for example, uh, we all know that we love our children. Uh, we love them very much, but we would probably all agree us parents, that it's not always the easiest thing to be gentle with our children. Uh, and of course, I mean maybe with our harshness. And just recently, uh, something that kind of has, you know, I, I was thinking of this message and I was thinking about this idea of gentleness and maybe an illustration. Uh, at the Whiteley household, we have a dog named Millie. Uh, and it's a golden doodle. It's a mix between a golden retriever and a poodle. Uh, and uh, we all love Millie, I tell you. Uh, we, we love Millie, but uh, she is a handful. And I can tell you that if you've ever seen the movie, the 1980s movie with Tom Hanks, uh, Turner and Hooch, anyone know I'm talking about? It's a movie where he has this, I'm not even sure what kind of dog it is, but basically just any and everything that's left on the floor in my house will be ripped to shred, shreds by Millie. 
whether it be a pencil, paper, books, any type of clothing, the dirtier the better, shoes, all of them will be destroyed by Millie. And so what I'm getting at, as you can imagine, I have three children walking around my house who sometimes get like a new shoe or a new hat or something like that. And every single day, repeatedly, we have to remind them, do not take your socks off and leave them on the floor. Do not take your shoes off and leave them on the floor. Do not leave your book, the brand new book that you just got at the book fair, on the table. Because what will happen? It'll be the lunch. It'll be lunch for Millie. And so as you can imagine, the frustration, once or twice a week it seems like, you know, with our children, we can repeatedly tell them something over and over and over again, sometimes multiple times a day, and they still don't listen. And it becomes easy to become ungentle, to keep reminding them in the same manner. And of course, I'm not saying that we stay, that we continue to use the same tactics. I mean, we have to, be, we have to use our brains. Something's not working, we might have to do it a different way. But as I was thinking about this idea, and I was thinking about this illustration, uh, you know, being harsh to my children or to anybody, to my wife, to people I work with, whatever, it's really never worked out to make things better. It really hasn't. In fact, a lot of times it makes me walk away being regretful, maybe a little embarrassed and ashamed on how I, you know, how I treated them or how I talked to them. And maybe you can relate to that. And of course, that much more with brethren within the church, not just people outside of the church. And so some of you maybe can relate to this, but if we think about this illustration, you might have your own illustration, you might have your own uh, examples, but uh, let's just thank God that he did not require us to perfect our actions, our conduct, uh, our gentleness before he saved us. For Jesus did what he did. Let's thank God that even though we're repeatedly sometimes sinning, and we repeatedly struggle with things, and that we read in the scriptures that there's something that we shouldn't be doing, and we repeat it. We repeatedly maybe breach that commandment. Not saying that it's okay, but we have forgiveness. That we have grace. That God doesn't require us to have this perfection. This perfection when it comes to uh, Jesus doing what he did. Of course, we know that, uh, you know, when we look at Jesus, he's the great example of this. You know, he didn't turn around and look at, you know, Matthew, the tax collector, the sinner, and say, Matthew, I tell you what, I want you to follow me. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to keep my distance. But until you fix that sinful behavior of yours, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Fix that first, then I'll come and teach you. He did the same thing with someone who was a possible adulterer. When we look at the adulterer, the woman, a Roman soldier that needed help with their daughter, uh, with their child being uh, 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 sick. Uh, And the same thing, of course, whenever he was being crucified to a criminal right beside him, being executed along with him. At his darkest hour, he gave forgiveness to that individual. He had a gentleness about him. So as we Look at the characteristics of Jesus. Humility then gentleness. And in no way does this mean that we put up with sin. It doesn't mean that we say it's okay, you 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 can be a sinner. That's not what we're saying. We see Paul, to the contrary, argues against this as we see in Corinthians that there was a uh, 
I guess you would say they had become uh, content with just allowing sin to run amok within the Corinthian church with what was going on. And I think Matthew still, I believe, touched upon that last week in his message. But what we do know is, is that whenever there is something that is threatening the unity of the Spirit, when there is something that, whether it be sin, whether it be conflicts, that we have a gentleness, a gentleness in going about trying to rectify that issue. That it's done like Christ would do. That it's done in righteousness. And it's done with the uh, aim of restoration and reconciliation. Let's move on to this last, uh, and just to mention these last two, uh, gentleness, it's of course uh, part of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, the fifth chapter, and this, this last one I'm going to go over, which I'm combining, patience and long-suffering. Patience and long-suffering. So I'm just going to read those again. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness, this is from Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses two, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, and love, bearing with one another and love. So this idea of patience and long-suffering, they go hand in hand. Reluctance to avenge wrongs is what long-suffering is all about. We're not looking to settle old scores. We're not holding on to old grudges. This is a natural byproduct of humility and gentleness. We have humility, we're gentle, Naturally, a byproduct of those two things is patience and long-suffering. The byproduct of those two things. Like gentleness, as I mentioned, self-control is a part of Paul's characteristics that are part of Galatians, the fifth chapter, verses 22 and 23. And we have to remember, as I mentioned earlier in this uh, the introduction, why do we need these characteristics? Because although we've become a part of Christ's body, we would all agree we're not perfected yet. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need these care. We wouldn't need to be reminded of these characteristics. If all of us were perfect, we really wouldn't need to be patient and long-suffering with each other, would we? It wouldn't be something that was required. And I can tell you this much. Uh, I know that I'm not perfect. And uh, many of you have long-suffered me for many years. And I'm very appreciative to God of that and that, you know, a part of this unity of the Spirit is forgiveness and is long-suffering. So we can see that these things that are a part of what Paul brings to us, is they're all prerequisites for us to maintain that unity of the Spirit. And that's the last thing that Paul says in this section. He says, walk worthy of your calling with these characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience and long-suffering, forbearing with each other, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other translations that we read, it says, make every effort. In Paul's mind, not having the qualities of humility, gentleness, patience, and long-suffering jeopardizes the Christian paradigm of unity. It jeopardizes that paradigm for that reason, Paul tells us to use all of our powers, everything we have, in these characteristics. That's how important they are. And why? Because these were the characteristics that differentiated Jesus Christ when he was on this earth. These are the attitudes 
and the conduct in which he displayed. And Paul tells us, in this, this great blessing that we have, he uses this word one multiple times to describe different things that we have. That's a blessing. I'm going to just go through them real quick. He says, one body. I'm going to just read it real quick. He says, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. That's a blessing. There is this idea, and we see that the first thing that he says is that there's one body. We have all been placed in that body. We know that body is Jesus' body, and he is the head, and we are members of that body. And one of the things I think that you know, people sometimes within our tradition and our faith tradition, you know, the church of God and different churches of God, is they get this idea that somehow they have a monopoly on that one body. We belong to the body of Christ. Not the body of Christ that's in the Tulsa Church of God. It's not the body of Christ that's in the Worldwide Church of God or the Church of God International or the Living Church of God. It's the body of Christ. It is a living organism that transcends congregations. It is a universal organism. We are a part of it. We're members apart. We are part of as members. And we don't have a monopoly on who's in it. It's Christ's body, not our body. I think it's interesting when you read, and I was just kind of quickly put this note in here as I was preparing this message, that Paul, when he mentions this word bond of peace in verse 3, it's the same word he uses in reference to the ligaments of the body that binds the body together in Colossians, the second chapter. You see, this is a physical metaphor, the body of Christ, but it's a spiritual reality. That, you know, through the body, and you can, I mean, you can get as detailed as you want on some of these analogies that Paul gives us, and I don't have time for that today, but it is a living organism that operates in a similar manner that we see in typical anatomy of the human body. The brain puts the signals out and sustains the body. Things are kept together through the ligaments and things like that. There are so many different metaphors in this. We don't have time to go into it today, uh, but it would be something worthy maybe to look at at some point in the future. He also says one spirit. All of us have been given that same spirit. We're, you know, we, we are, you know, the spirit of God is one. It's his spirit. We all, we share in that spirit. That spirit is in all of us. It's what makes us a part of that body. It's what puts us in that body. It gives us the same DNA if we're still looking at this metaphorically as that idea of a body, the body of Christ, and that spirit dwells within us. We have one hope. All true believers have one hope. You know, there isn't a different hope for you versus me. It's all the same. We're all looking for the return of Jesus Christ. That this kingdom that the, the Bible throughout talks about being established with Jesus Christ as the king. This promise of eternal life. The redemption of our bodies. One Lord. All of us have one Lord which is over all of us. And of course is that head. The head of the church. The head of the body of Christ. Jesus Christ. 
There is no other Lord in existence from history or in the future that is above Jesus Christ. He is Lord over them all. The whole point of calling him Lord of Lords and Kings of Kings is to emphasize that he is over all sovereign powers that are in existence. We have one faith, the same doctrinal core. We, of course, you know, sometimes we can, you know, get mixed up in some of those non-essentials of the Christian faith. You know, maybe we have different ideas about certain things, and what I mean by non-essentials, maybe, you know, we look at certain things, and we look at maybe different things that represent something. You know, maybe, you know, some people look at the Azazel goat uh, of Leviticus as representing one thing, but you view it as another thing. You know, those are all what I consider non-essentials. You know, you know, it's not the trunk of the tree. We all believe in Christ. We all believe in you know, the, the, the core of the gospel message. But of course, there are things that maybe sometimes we see just a little bit differently. Uh, we might you know, see it uh, you know, in, in ways that uh, are not detrimental to the core of our doctrinal faith. One baptism, all of us have been baptized, of course, in the same baptism. The baptism of the Spirit. The baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And that baptism represents something specific, doesn't it? It represents us dying with Christ and coming up in newness of life. We've all been baptized in that same baptism. One God. We all worship the same God and thus understand that He is the only God. The same God of Jesus. The the Father of Jesus. We all have these things in common. And Paul's wanting to emphasize the unity of the Spirit to remind us that sometimes we may have differences, sometimes we might disagree with each other, but we're to maintain that humility, that gentleness, that that patience and long-suffering because we are family. We are a part of the same DNA structure. We have the same hope, the same Lord, the same God. We're a family. So as we approach the Passover season, uh, I just wanted to bring this message to you today. Uh, Think about those ideas that Paul gives us. I don't think that there's ever a time where we don't need to really think about these characteristics, these Christian characteristics that were ultimately displayed by Jesus Christ in the most perfect way. But we living in the flesh... You know, we talk about the Passover season. One of the things that we are to do is we are to examine ourselves. We are to examine where we are in the faith. We are to examine where our priorities are, where are our focuses. Do we demonstrate a worthy calling? Are our focuses, is our conduct, is our walking equivalent to what we claim our calling to be? As we approach this Passover season, I encourage all of us to reflect on these things. Uh, as we examine ourselves uh, to take, of course, uh, the Lord's Passover here in just a few weeks.